0: Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities.
1: It was a pleasure to be in conversation with Daniel Simpson. Daniel is the author of The Truth of Yoga, a comprehensive guide to yoga, history, and philosophy. His approach is engaging and fun, making scholarly knowledge accessible and relevant to modern practitioners. Daniel holds a master's degree in yoga studies from SOAS University of London and teaches courses at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies on yoga teacher trainings and online. In today's conversation, we spoke about the history of yoga, the historical appropriations through the age of various yogas, classical yoga as embodied practice, similar frameworks of phenomenology in yoga and rolfing lineages, and traditions, as well as excerpts from his wonderful new book, and why Truth of Yoga is a great place between academia and laymanship. Find out more about Daniel and his book at truthofyoga.com, as well as the Amazon link in the episode description. You can find our info on his courses at danielsimpson.info. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hey, Daniel. (laughs) I'm in the middle of your book right now, and I'm really looking forward to recommending it to people. To be like, here, <laughs> learn something. Oh, well, thanks. I'm glad. I'm glad it gives you that impression. And
2: um, the working title for it was Yoga Without the Bullshit, uh, yeah. and <laughs> it got spun round to be The Truth of Yoga. But it was yeah you know, to try and say that a whole tradition of ideas associated with this practice to have absolutely nothing to do with. Yeah, repeating affirmations in front of the bathroom mirror and uh, mm. <laughs> other such new age delusions, magical mm. thinking, etc. etc. And instead, I think people have used yeah, the feeling that they get within themselves to rationalize gut instincts. You know, we all get funny feelings about the way the world is, but that's, that's not necessarily the most skillful use of the grey matter between the
1: ears <laughs> to make sense of information. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think actually that's enough. We can end the podcast right there. That sums it all. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> no. I guess as far as starting, one of my hopes, what I was hoping to do is sort of, I mean, yoga is a huge topic, but a lot of it was sort of about the embodiment piece. Uh, I remember when I learned, like in particular, the Buddha Shuddhi practices and 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 understanding the embodied practice of yoga, which were not just like these physical Asana is created less than a hundred years ago, but there's other pieces, and and maybe maybe dive into some of that. I don't know if there's like how how you would want to organize things. I think starting with like about you would obviously make sense. I'm absolutely happy to go wherever wherever things take us. Um, mm. I've I've got all
2: sorts of things I can say, but you yeah, know, let's see what you'd like to hear about, and we'll we'll just go from there.
1: Cool, cool. Well, one thing I I want to share for people listening is how awesome your book is. Um, and and what, I, what I've really enjoyed, I mean, I've read a bunch of, Mal, I've read Mallinson's books and I've read articles of him and Mallinson is amazing and ingenious uh, but he's, he's very academic. And so sometimes it like, I read a page and I have to take a nap. Um, and, and I've read other books that are less academic and read really easily, but maybe leave me feeling a little bit of like, mm, what is the accuracy here? And what I've, I've loved what your book is it has that academic, it has the, I mean, you, you have the credentials, Um, and the, the way you write is very academic, but there's also this playfulness and easiness and it's, it really straddles the line. And so I think it makes it really easy for people who maybe are, um, have done a little bit of, of yoga training and want to know more, but don't want to get bogged down. And it's just this beautiful bridge across. That's how I found it to be. I'm so
2: happy to hear you say that. I mean that was my aspiration in writing the book, and uh, I guess you know there's two aspects to my background that, that 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 made it come together that way. I have studied yoga academically, I've had the great fortune to study with people like Jim mallinson, Mark Singleton, you know right at the cutting edge, Jason birch, also you know the forefront of research on. The history of yoga as a physical practice really looking in the modern era what's happened in the last hundred years uh, which has been very innovative from the point of view of what's taught as yoga uh, before that the, the 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 emergence of increasingly complex systems of, of, of physical yoga practice and even way before that just the the, the very birthplace of, of, of yoga is something to do with the body because for many many years perhaps more than half of yoga's history it's uh, it's been a seated practice about transcending the body rather than working with the body um so i've really had the you know the benefit of, of, of their wisdom in helping me to see clearly but as you say you know they're, they're scholars they write for each other primarily they're, they're pushing the boundaries of knowledge so you know, they're, they're engaged in that project they're happy to talk to the general public and when they do they do speak clearly but they don't write their academic papers that way and so i've wanted to share that knowledge with the broader yoga community i'm a yoga practitioner i'm a yoga teacher as well um but before all of this i was a journalist so my basic professional skill set is immerse myself in a topic for yeah, a period of time and, and and try to come back with the clearest, most accurate summary <laughs> that I can possibly put together. And in my book, I've done that with you know maybe 100 different topics, tried to say, well, if you could only read 500 words on the subject, these ones are going to count. And then if you want to go further, obviously, you need to read more. I'm not the, the overall authority. But my aim was to make a, a sort of big picture story more accessible about how yoga has developed from its earliest origins to all of the things that are now called yoga and then provide all the jumping off points for people to see you know where they could go further with that and also to understand how what people talk about today is cultural appropriation or the mixing and matching of things in ways that aren't necessarily traditional is actually the process by which yoga has developed throughout its history. Different ideas have been combined, uh, rearranged, remixed, (laughs) large elements, then discarded. And then other things have come back into fashion again. And you can see those trends throughout history. So in a way, it is authentic to do that. But one has to have some concern for tradition. So I wanted to show what the yoga tradition has said about itself and enable modern practitioners then I guess, to develop their own relationship with that material and, and to feel that they can do that authentically, you know, with, without at the same time <laughs> feeling tied down to take one text and, and try and behave
1: like somebody from 2000 years ago. Yeah, uh, that's, that's awesome. A, especially, I, I just had a conversation about the appropriation with someone the other day in regards to uh, a longer story, but they, they thinking that the West has appropriated yoga. And I was like, but Yoga has been appropriating yoga for, for years gave, within the, 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 the South Asian continent. Or I wouldn't even say India has been appropriating within itself. That's that's how it, that's how it grew. That's how so much of it, it did. And um, we didn't we did not see eye to eye in the end of it, but that's OK. Uh, I can send them your book and maybe they will uh, <laughs> learn a little more. I have some choice words to say in the closing chapters about
2: um, this whole debate around appropriation and, and also sometimes the hidden agendas of people who are very interested in having that discussion. Um, there's an attempt, particularly in India and amongst members of the Indian diaspora, to assert ownership of yoga for, for reasons connected to Hindu nationalism. And it's important, I think, that you know, concerned, well-meaning, uh, liberal-minded modern yoga practitioners don't get their ear bent too much by these people so that they start adopting those those talking points. Um, it, it's for sure important to be concerned about the way in which white people, um, particularly Brits, have you know, exploited the Indian subcontinent uh, and to therefore be mindful of the echo of that in the way that some yoga teachers uh, repackage things to the point that they're unrecognizable from their Indian inspiration, strip out all the Hinduism, strip out the Indian context, and then make a load of money out of it and call it yoga. Um, clearly, that's going to annoy some people. That's okay. But but that doesn't mean you have to you know, take dictation about uh, dubious uh, explanations of history that, that, that enable modern Indian politicians to uh, mistreat minorities. That's not very helpful.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I was just curious so i i have i've dabbled in yoga and um and I would say I would be more a asana practitioner mm-hmm. that I really came out of it for more of the the physical rewards and not so much um and, and the physical and the mind body, but I never really went i was i guess i would say I wasn't so invested to you know learn all the the history and the the mantras and and all that and so i've always kind of found myself as i as i talk and say oh i'm certified in yoga i'm very blunt about the fact that like i practiced asana and i did the beach certification the 200 hour great beach training and then later i did do training with ts little and a little bit more of the the therapeutics But, um, and I'm, I'm very curious to read a little bit more of your book. I read, I saw that little clip of yoga that you have on your website, yoga in a minute. And I was like, that's great. And, um, but I, I still, I like to ask the question, do you think in the Western world right now, are people, are we practicing yoga or have people just marketed off the, the asana practice?
1: Well, it's
2: an excellent question, and I mean, it has been commoditized and then packaged in such a way that there are people who have been taught things in gyms that, that have absolutely nothing to do with the philosophical tradition that yoga developed from, um, or the original objectives of yoga, which uh, are to do ultimately with reducing and ideally eliminating suffering. Uh, that had all sorts of explanations that were quite esoteric in terms of you know, avoiding being reborn, and, um, the, uh, the whole process by which one might do that involving effectively renouncing the world but fundamentally that was the objective and, and you know most people today are in some ways looking for that I think we do all sorts of things in modern life that aren't very helpful sometimes to, to try and avoid future suffering um, but that's not often what people are looking for from you know a workout and uh, they're, they're just looking. To feel better in their bodies, or to look better in their bodies, um, and that's the way in for a lot of people to to an embodied movement-based practice that may sometimes be marketed as yoga. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I do think we have to question: is there a point to which things you know can evolve beyond which they're not really yoga? Because um, some things today are called yoga. I, I've seen recently things like rage yoga, which basically just involves, yeah, you know, shouting, <laughs> sticking the middle finger up at people. And I'm sure that feels very cathartic. But I don't really see how that has a connection with anything else that's been called yoga in the past. But moving in the body has been a thing in the yoga tradition now for, for quite a few hundred years, um, and was part of the practice of martial artists uh wrestlers um dancers and, and there's a lot of crossover between these movement disciplines in indian history that's barely understood and scholars are really working on that now trying to to, to see those intersections um so it's not new for people to think well this this, this practice of moving the body in these particular ways, perhaps, you know, at least with a bit of focus on what I'm doing and maybe even focus on the breath at the same time. And, um, you know, that's, that's pretty traditional, uh, e- even if you're not thinking about the philosophical context or the ultimate aim of, you know, eliminating suffering and you're just doing the practice and that's been done and called yoga for some time. So uh, i do think that's a very valid way in but it does come down to are you paying attention the practice of yoga really if we're really going to try and sort of define it at the most sort of helicopter level flying as high as we can above everything that falls under the label yoga um training in attention seems to be the the, the, the common factor uh, and physical yoga practice has a connection to to the older meditative approaches to yoga if it encourages what the texts call one pointed focus um, so, concentration really and um, concentration on an object the object being the shape being made in the body becoming aware of the movement of the body in space not just sort of mindlessly flailing around <laughs> and uh, yeah most of the way that yoga's taught today encourages that whether one's looking for it or not it's an accidental byproduct, and that tends to cultivate a quieter state of mind and perhaps an inclination to approach life a little more meditatively and then other things start to arise
0: so with that being said, how then what would be the point of differentiation to like another historical movement like martial arts? I mean, that's a lot of training with intention and, mm. in the, the, you know, kind of finding your center. and.
2: Well, these practices are tools. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the name says it all with martial art. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's using this mastery over the mind and the body. Ultimately, to become a very effective weapon. Um, but in most systems of martial arts, that, that's sort of yeah, something way over the horizon that, that, that isn't really part of the point of the training. The training is its own end because it brings about that mastery. Um, so it's almost yeah, the art of fighting by not fighting, uh, <laughs> becoming so skilled in fighting that no fighting will ever be needed. Um, and, 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 you know, that's a different project, I think, to the yoga practice, um, although, you know, it's, it's it's a very blurry boundary between the two in the sense that there are traditional yogis who were, were mercenaries who were, you know, using this transcendence of, of the world, of the body, uh, mastery over the elements within themselves um, to be fearless, you know, wielders of weapons, Um uh, for, for money <laughs> and some of them fought the british when when the british were trying to establish the east india company in, in in the 18th century in india some of them were hired by the british to fight back against other bands of these naked ascetics <laughs> because yeah the british imperial project was a, a, a very light touch thing not very many people were exported from from the west to, to 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 run the country um the genius or the evil malevolence of it all was to you know, enlist locals in the project. Um, but you know, locals were quite fearful of these naked holy men <laughs> wielding weapons and refused to fight them. So, so these mercenaries were quite a problem. And as a result of that, physical yoga practice got demonized under British colonial occupation. Um, it got pushed to the margins. We have you know, a lot of texts about physical yoga from maybe the 12th 13th century they start to to, to appear but you know, really really proliferating for the next 500 years or so and then physical yoga practice yeah, in the last two three hundred years um if we discount the the, the 20th century um uh, was was on the fringes again and uh it was something that that uh I think, yeah, for those political reasons, uh, the British had a, had a good interest in in, in marginalising, but also Indians, again under colonial occupation, took a lot of this on board and and thought of yoga as a more spiritual, philosophical practice that should be you know, distant somewhat from these physical practice and then practices. And then, then early Westerners who took an interest in yoga had a similar perspective. The Theosophical Society, for example. Um, involved in translating quite a few tantric and yogic texts in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, were primarily interested in the cultivation of power in the body, um, meditative practices, uh, visualizations, and the harnessing of, 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 of inner flows of energy but, but not in making shapes with the body. That was, that was just something that the, the, the weird roadside beggars did. <laughs> yeah, the char- characteristic example being you know, what we would refer to as you know, somebody who sits around on a bed of nails. Uh, that was the, the, the classic kind of, uh, demonization. This <laughs> is a layabout, a wastrel, uh, good for nothing. Who's basically a circus trickster. And, and, and some yogis then wound up trying to make a living as contortionists, performing on stage, coming to, to, to London in the 19th century to Victorian music halls and you know, showing off their ability to stick their legs behind their head uh, in the same way that the Western circus contortionists are doing that sort of thing. So physical yoga, I think, you know, only really got rehabilitated in the early 20th century as, 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 as a, a mass movement and at that point indians were interested in exercise so the combination of traditional yoga practices cultivation of the body and um you know very much worldly aims feeling better looking good uh, getting ahead in your professional career uh, while sort of being calm and uh, and clear about what you're doing those those were ideas that were cultivated in early 20th century india in an attempt to make yoga seem modern uh, scientific and rational and uh you know, to, to show ultimately uh firstly to the british we're not primitive um we've got a very sophisticated system of, of physical training of our own um and secondly to, to to really you know encourage indians to to strengthen themselves and, and to resist colonial occupation some early yoga teachers in the 20th century talking about that in those terms so it's a very tangled web it's very difficult sometimes actually to see the distinction between you know, modern Western versions of this and, 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 and what's happened 100 years earlier. It's just obviously it's happened in India then, so, so it is slightly different. But uh, the real difference, I think, is between physical yoga and everything that went before, 1500 years prior to, to, to this emergence of doing stuff with the body, because previously the body was an obstacle and it was, it was to be ignored effectively, <laughs> beaten into submission or, or contorted into a difficult position and left there forever, like holding an arm above your head for decades or standing on one leg, doing something really, really uncomfortable basically until the body's screaming at you, like this hurts, stop, stop, so that you detach from it and don't give into it. And that's the transcendence of desire. That's the transcendence of engagement with the world. Um, That's self-mastery by disappearing. And and for a lot of the early history of yoga, that was the project and that was the means. And that's obviously very different. Uh, And you wouldn't get very far trying to sell that to to modern yoga practitioners. And thankfully, other things have happened to, to, to evolve the practice since then.
1: And was it largely the, the introduction of the tantric practices that made it less of a... My understanding is before that, the, the yogis were more or less uh, renunciates. They renunciated the world, which means you couldn't have a family. You couldn't exist relatively in the world because you're trying to escape from it. And it was largely the introduction of the, the tantric practices where they were saying, instead of let's escape, it was like, how do we, how do we live within the world and transcend?
2: Yes, I think you're broadly right. Um, tantric philosophy certainly changed people's relationship to the body. The body was no longer an obstacle. The body was something that could be harnessed. It was ultimately, you know, a vehicle for spiritual development, um, and therefore should be cultivated, should be transformed, um, should be seen naturally as as, as a portal to divinity, um, and uh, you know, therefore not something to beat into submission, uh, to leave behind, and you know, really ultimately, the early yogis were were, were, were fast forwarding to the end of this life in the hope that they wouldn't come back. Um, so instead of that, Tantra was saying, well, everything here in this life can be used as, as fuel for waking up, um, because it's all just the flow of energy. Uh, and so long as we understand how that works correctly, then, then that can be liberating. But the enemy in a sense, you know, the, 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 the adversary, um, the potential downfall for the practitioner is is still the same thing it's it's the problem of desire and um, and tantra develops a new relationship with desire saying well, we can use desire to transcend desire but that's that's a very delicate balance to strike <laughs> the problem of desire is that it you know, gets us uh, hung up on things to the extent that we become effectively addicted to them and um, the most basic level you know we want more of the things we like and we want to avoid the things we don't like and that puts us in a difficult relationship with reality because reality is constantly denying us the things that we want and making us live with stuff that we would never have chosen like what's happened to most of us the last year um so the original yogic philosophical worldview was was stop trying to control anything in fact stop trying to have any interaction with the world there will be no desire there will be no problem of suffering um and Tantra is saying, well, actually, no, okay, you just need to be more skillful with with seeing what's going on, um, allowing desire to flow through it, <laughs> perhaps even enjoying, um, but not craving more, being okay with it coming and going. And ultimately being okay with things coming and going is is, is is the yogic state, because that's reality, things come and go. This body comes and goes, no amount of cultivating it is going to prevent that, although people are at work in Silicon Valley trying to wire us up to machines to, <laughs> to change that story, maybe they'll succeed and we'll have a, a another tantric style revolution in in how we relate to the body. Um but you know, sort of at the basic level, yes, that 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 was what changed things. But before that, though, there were seeds of something different. The Bhagavad Gita being the most influential yoga text in this respect, saying, "Well, you can't really renounce the world; it's actually impossible unless you're basically going to kill yourself." Um, then activity happens; the body is doing things every moment to sustain itself. The instinct to stay alive is is, is very strong, and. Uh, uh, at the same time, you know, then the question arises, what are we going to do with that? Well, we can be of no use to anybody whatsoever <laughs> sitting in the cave trying to transcend, uh, or we can try to actually you know, be liberated in the process of doing things and, and try to see how to use this embodied existence in a skillful way. Now, the Bhagavad Gita has its own sort of political context story and uh the problems of managing a hierarchical society basically a caste system if, if everybody is interested in sort of stepping away from 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 that hierarchical society because they see through it and see it as a source of their suffering they all want to go and live in a cave then there'll be nobody left to do the, the dirty work that enables the priests to carry on sitting on top of the pile so there's a certain context that yeah, suggests that priests found a way to make all of this world-renouncing stuff compatible with staying in society and thereby ensured their own perpetuation. Um, but I think philosophically, though, it was, it was a very skillful move because um, there are benefits to becoming less hung up on the outcomes of actions, which was the basic teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, and doing things for the sake of doing them without expecting personal gain. And if the problem is this sort of endless attempt to satisfy ourselves to put ourselves at the center of the universe and to try and organize reality in such a way that you know, we, we, we feel served by everything and get what we want all the time. We don't tend to live very harmoniously with others. We're exploiting them and trampling all over them uh, or, or, or refusing to, 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 to accept our limits. Uh, and so so I think, I think those are the seeds really of a more realistic relationship with reality that developed into Tantric religion. Um, an understanding of divinity permeating everything in the 11th chapter of the bhagavad-gita krishna reveals himself as all things in the universe and you know, it's, it's a religious text the, the title bhagavad-gita means god's song um and that can be a bit you know sort of off-putting to, to some western practitioners but it's, it's actually really psychedelic <laughs> i mean Krishna is is just is sort of uh, showing the, the 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 absolute unlimited nature of of, of of energetic phenomena, pulsating constantly with past, present, and future, uh, just depending on how you look at it, how, you know, how time is arranged. He's saying, "I'm beyond. I am time. I am the creation of the cycle of everything. Here is all things happening at once: past, present, and future." Uh, revealed right now, it's like you know sensory overload—the the inability of the mental filters to function that stop us from walking around in psychedelic chaos twenty-four-seven—and um, and when we see the world from that perspective, it's blatantly clear that we're <laughs> we're totally insignificant configurations of you know energy and matter here right now at this moment but you know we'll soon pass <laughs> and there's all manner of other configurations too why should we prioritize any of it if we want to be you know worshiping anything we should just worship all of it because <laughs> it's all you know potentially us and uh we're, we're all each other anyway um and so tantric philosophy grew out of that i think uh although tantric traditions like to say. They invented
1: the whole story. I think there were plenty of seeds they were working with. Yeah, that's beautiful. For me, when I got into yoga, it's sort of similar, like Nikki was saying, it was very, it was very actually physical. And even I remember in my first training, I left being like, this is great, but that philosophy stuff, I don't need that. (laughs) And later in time, I think each subsequent training, being a little more interested in the philosophy. And I think part of the reason I struggled with the philosophy at first was because my teachers were great and they were sharing what they knew, but it it never made sense. And it didn't make sense because they had different stories upon different stories, as was common for a lot of the the, the yoga things. You hear something and it makes sense that you hear it from a certain perspective. Uh, But it wasn't until much later, largely when I accidentally took a, a two-week training with Carlos uh, that, I, that the universe kind of plopped in my lap, that the way he explained stuff, it was sort of like, oh, that's that's why that doesn't fit with there. And that's, oh, that's a misunderstanding there. Oh, oh, the chakras are really just a, a confabulation of uh, Jung. That's that's great. Uh, well, they're not, but the way that we, we teach them are. And so slowly going you know, into that and yoga really led me into a more more into phenomenology. And mm-hmm. interestingly, though, so Nikki and I are both Rolfers yeah. and Rolfing has a lot of phenomenology or it can have a lot of phenomenology put into that. What are we working with with people or, you know how does how does an embodied being Relate to the world. And so for me, when I would talk to people and they would say, Well, what do you do? And I'd say, Well, you know, I'm a yoga teacher, a yoga therapist, and I'm also a structural body worker. I do rolfing. And they'd say, Well, isn't that very different? And I'd say, Well, no. I mean, to me, both are working with nature and reality as it's unfolding, whether it's a, you know, a physical body and stuck in a a, a movement or a thought stuck in a movement or, or, or other. These are all just. To me they're they're really the same but the the problem is that my view of reality and most people's view of reality doesn't quite align
2: you know there's a big problem with yoga philosophy uh, when we're trying to make sense of it as westerners you know we haven't grown up with with an exposure to indian tradition most of us um or if we have it's usually been you know through various new age prisms um as you were describing there with the, the whole story of chakras, you know, they've been you know, reinvented even since Carl Jung, <laughs> the whole association with rainbow colors is, is, perhaps only 30 or 40 years old Um, all, all manner of remixes of of, of, of ideas. So there's that problem, but more, more, more to the point, there are many, many philosophies of yoga. Um, there isn't one. There's not some pure tradition from which everything else has descended. There are lots of different explanations that have arisen at different moments for different reasons. Um, some of them, harmoniously fit together others completely contradict each other and uh that they, they just can't be made to go away and yet in Indian tradition texts have just combined them as if there's no problem to the point it's very hard to separate them and you know, modern western teachers will talk as if you know yoga means union um it's got eight limbs and it's all about chakras and those three things come from completely different phases of history different philosophies and utterly incompatible frankly <laughs> but you know, they've become that way and you know what what to do that's that's how people understand things so part of my attempt in writing the book has been to to disentangle these things and to show how each have their own context and then have been you know put together and and we can we can engage in that um but the benefit of looking at yoga philosophy really is, is, is first of all, just to, to, to see that the problems that affect the body are often in the mind and vice versa. And uh, obviously, as body workers, you understand that. That's what you're working with. But until relatively recently, that was not a common idea in the West. Um, you know, the... The chief villain is usually suggested as being Rene Descartes at his idea, you know, I think, therefore I am, you know, total obsession with the mind, not really that much interest in, in, in the body, as, as if we, you know, if we could cultivate our minds enough, we wouldn't even need a body. Uh, and the yoga tradition has always seen mind and body is in, 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 in inherently linked. In fact, uh, the distinction in a lot of yoga philosophy is between the mind and body and something else that is the witness of what's happening in the mind and the body. And uh, I think a lot of problems of human experience make a lot of sense within our own embodied experience if we start to look at them that way. um, If we get ourselves caught up in the thoughts in our head or the pain we have in parts of the body, then that just amplifies it. If we're able to somehow experience our embodiment, without identifying with the contents of the mind or the feelings in the body and just allowing them to to be present something else starts to happen and uh, I think yoga philosophy provides a you know, really fertile ground for exploring that but the other thing that I think is very different in in recent history is we didn't have tools um, for explaining this internal experience uh, until very recently uh, I was reading there's a book called uh, the Path of Modern Yoga by Elliot Goldberg, that came out about five years ago, and one of the many uh, scholarly books on which you know I drew to to write my summary. Um, and he points out there with, with quite a lot of interesting detail the origination of the concept of what we call proprioception, um, which is really a sort of an understanding of the body's movement from the inside as, as as its present in space. And the guy who came up with that idea was was presenting it, you know barely 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago. Um, and there mm-hmm. wasn't language for this until then. And after that point, there was suddenly proliferation in, 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 in mind-body therapies, modalities, uh, yeah, perhaps probably the most famous coming at the early days of the Alexander technique, um, having a lot of influence on, on, on perhaps even the teaching of yoga, certainly in terms of physical instructions, put this there and, 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 and try to sort of deal with the problems of the mind through the body. Uh, so that, that's relatively new, but then at the same time, back back in yoga history, that there, there are these texts talking about inner experience, um, sometimes visualising it. I mean, that was the original function of chakras. They're not there in the body, and they don't have particular properties. They're templates for meditative visualization, um, and that was the whole process of, of you know tantric embodied practice. Was to get very subtle in the experience of the embodiment, um, and then very ritually to to install you know, mantras, um, visions, uh, energetic qualities uh, associated with the divine in different places, very specifically uh, to, to to remake the body effectively, symbolically deconstruct it, and then reconstruct it. Um, but that provided language for for for, for talking about internal experience that, that was obviously very appealing and that's, that's why has got I guess you know, misappropriated and misrepresented but um, there's, there's also before that even language um, modern mindfulness teachers make use of uh, a discourse given by the Buddha yeah, getting on for two and a half thousand years ago in which he describes mindfulness of the body and, and speaks you know, in great detail about a sense of embodied experience and using that as a way of training attention um and it's not really just the simple level of the way it's presented today is you know just pay attention while brushing your teeth or doing the washing up it's pay real attention to the nature of this body and and the fact that it's basically you know a collection of fluids in in this container that's quite leaky that will eventually burst and be no use any longer and that'll be the end of it um so clearly it's not something to get too attached to it's uh, a part of that project of seeing through the illusion of the body that all the early yoga practitioners were into and the buddha and early yoga very strongly connected but at the same time he's saying through an awareness of that you can any day in you know, any moment of the day um get a clear understanding of who you are through the body so the body was seen there as a tool it wasn't Buddha tried some crazy ascetic stuff like starving himself or holding his breath and to to, to the point of blacking out and said, that's just self-torture, that's not going to help. But, you know, he he was still fairly austere and at the same time had a language for being mindful of embodied existence. Um, And there's a sort of current from that point forwards of talking about this and yoga texts pick up on it a little bit to talk about it We experience suffering through the body. There's a a metaphor in the great Indian epic, the Mahabharata, of there being a knot in the heart. This is probably one of the earliest references to what becomes chakra systems. And and if we can untie this knot, there'll be great happiness. Uh, if we could just think about what it is to be depressed, closed in, compared to this sort of emanation of loving energy uh, 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 and just uh, complete at easeness if that's really a word uh with with the way things are then there is no problem and, and and through the body therefore the problems of the mind can be resolved so there are these hints and i don't think we have that in in in, in, in certainly western philosophical traditions until more recently with the advent of you know, tools like phenomenology to, to 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 actually give it some sort of I mean, scientific even footing for, for, for being discussed, but still, you know, science is, is, is quite skeptical of the idea of first-person experience being something that can be the basis for, for drawing, you know, more broader conclusions. Um, but you know, from a pra- practitioner's perspective or from a healer's perspective, this is obviously, you know, very, very powerful. It's, it's, it's a way of having a relationship with, 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 with somebody that, that, that can be therapeutic.
0: Well, for someone who hasn't, I mean, I've always felt with yoga or the asana practice with it and the, the the active movement has always, I always kind of felt in touch with the tradition, even though it's not something I spend a lot of time studying, you know, I've read a few books here and there. Maybe you've had a few teachers that you know gave a really great sound bite of the tradition right before the practice, and would dabble it through, because um, then often there's the the people who you know are just turned twenty, and then all of a sudden did a two hundred hour training, and then they are these great philosophers and. So I've I've had this kind of ebbs and flows of going into studios and practicing because you know I find teachers that I really like or, or it's a convenient studio. But then I can also feel feel very turned off into, the 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 actual practice. But when I'm at home and doing it, there is something really beautiful I think of of the asanas and just going in through movement and. And they're they're not very complex. Like I'm not a person who's like throwing my feet behind my head or getting in those crazy advanced positions. And there, I just feel like that's it's it's, it's a, such a powerful tool of becoming in line with yourself and feeling feeling the bliss of movement and how it feels good. And then also the, the parts of that don't feel good, but you're just, you're staying present and you're learning tolerance of suffering and, and things like that. And then for, for me, who I taught at the Rolf Institute. So I've seen a lot of um, students come through and, and also being part of other kind of mind, body movement practices. I feel like yoga is kind of a gateway, like the gateway drug, into some kind of higher i will i won't say higher because i don't want to put it on this pedestal but in a way to start enriching their knowledge in these mind body practices that isn't necessarily going and becoming a, a yoga scholar but i feel like it is but there's there's always that nugget that's like in their bodies that Brings them into whether it's a rolfing practice or even massage or somatic work, martial arts. I mean, would you would you agree, or is that just my own little kind of soapbox? On
2: <laughs> no, I think. You know, I think uh,
0: the tradition without reading all the books.
2: <laughs> I mean, you know, it's very possible to get lost in the mind through the study of yoga texts. Uh, the pro- the problem for yeah most of the history of yoga has been we get lost in the mind we get confused about our identity and we get attached to the wrong things and uh, form unhelpful conclusions about ourselves and the world as a result um, and we can do that through studying yoga texts we can do that through physical practice it's also possible to practice in a, a very dissociative way I've, I've spent a lot of time around you know um, quite advanced practitioners of, of, of ashtanga yoga and uh, there are some, you know, not to suggest that this is exclusive to Ashtanga, but I, I guess it's the context in which I've seen it. Some people who use that practice as a way of uh, punishing themselves. And uh, so they perhaps have, you know, there's a lot of disordered eating because there's a lot of trying to make sure that the body is completely empty so that you can contort it to the max early in the morning. So basically they don't eat after a certain time. Um being very concerned about what you put in um, and there's a lot of you know sort of control issues that, that can easily develop and actually therefore not being so focused on being present to embodied experience trying to 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 to, to master the body and, and beat it into submission it's almost more like asceticism um i don't want to you know, Sounds like I've got it in for that practice. I've, I've, I've practiced Ashtanga style yoga quite a lot. Um, I've, 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 I've taught some of it as well, and uh, I think it's, it's a great tool. But all these things are tools. It depends how we use them. Um, we can use them skillfully, or we can use them unhelpfully. And, and the way you were describing asana practice sounded, to me, very skillful. Um, it sounded like you know, what what has happened in the West that the best teachers have found a way to encode philosophical truths in the practice of these physical postures that are profound Um, and the problem of suffering really consists of not being willing to tolerate the discomfort of being alive life is not all peachy and things happen that we don't like and as you just articulated if it's possible to tolerate things that are a little bit uncomfortable as an embodied practice in a way that is careful, uh, boundaried, it's not, you know, to, I'm going to subject myself to lots of agony and potentially damage myself, but that I'm not going to run away from a little bit of discomfort. I'm going to learn to breathe in such a way as it can potentially even dissolve. Um, that's 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 an exportable skill. <laughs> something that becomes part of day-to-day life. And no amount of reading yoga texts is necessarily going to help one to acquire that. Whereas embodied experience does and so I, I, I think that's one of the gifts of modern postural yoga when skillfully taught and um, it makes this stuff really accessible of course if one then wants to go further with it and, and you know, really make sure one's on the right path one needs to think about ideas that maybe don't get mentioned in a class to see you know what what skillfulness really consists of am I basically compounding my suffering by adding to this process whereby I confuse myself and Strengthen my sense of attachment to, to self gratification or am I getting better at being able to ride the waves of reality um, because reality is going to keep having waves that's just the nature of reality and um, no amount of trying to control it will ever succeed unfortunately but we can get some control over how we respond to it and, and, and I think yoga yeah, is a really good tool for, for teaching us that and as you were articulating you can learn that through an us in the practice without really thinking about the uh, the terminology but it needs to be taught that way it needs to encourage presence and there's a lot of teaching that doesn't um and one of the bugbears for me is playing loud music and, and yeah, some people find that helpful they yeah, bliss out to, to the movement and, and, and the soundtrack um but are not necessarily very focused on their embodied experience are more dissociating from it and yet others will tell me the exact opposite they find that very grounding because it takes them out of their heads and enables them to be in their body in the same way that some find chanting a mantra helpful in that way and others find it really off-putting and somehow like they're, they're they're, they're snouting somebody else's religious gobbledygook, <laughs> that doesn't doesn't feel very comfortable. And also, the cultural appropriation police will definitely get on your case if you start using that language, as I just did.
0: Well, I shared that because I, in my experience as being a personal trainer, there um, there's times where I'd be working with a client and knew that their or could see that their body would really benefit from a particular essentially stretch. And from being in yoga classes, I knew, you know, all these different postures, and I would have these clients that um would be, you know, I don't do yoga. I don't like yoga. I'm not going to do yoga. And then I would put them in this position and I would just kind of cue them in how to be. Didn't call it any particular thing. And they would get into whatever thing that I needed them that I thought they needed to be in and, and they would hold it and they're like, Oh God, it it feels good. And I always would think of like, when I would hear this and I, I don't know if this is still the truth in yoga, but Asana's practice helps open up, you know, channels in your body or lines and. And so they always come to mind and, you know, after a while of, you know, doing that, they'd be like, oh, can can we do that stretch again? That just felt so good. I could feel it throughout the day. And later they're like, what is this? You know, they'd always think that like, I'm like creating these things. (laughs) I'm like, no, you just did yoga. You did a yoga pose. And they're like, what? Ah!" (laughs) So it would just always be so funny that putting these people who were like, absolutely I don't do yoga those are for those weird hippies this is kind of people I would work with in New York City and um yeah it was just always fun to kind of put them in these positions and they would feel this this openness and it wasn't just oh you know their hip flexors felt better there was this energetic charge that they would feel and um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I was going at. With I, f- I feel like the tradition, whether you're studying it or not, or really into it, it comes through in the movements.
2: The body can be experienced in in so many ways. I mean, there's a very gross experience of embodiment of just sort of knowing you've got parts and you can put them in places. Um, but there's a feeling within that, uh, an energetic flow, and paying attention deliberately uh to where these sort of external bits and pieces are placed makes it easier for there to be a free flow inside and uh on the most sort of basic level i think that's that's how that's how yoga practice cues us into an energetic experience of being embodied and and there's an explanation of that and again you know, it's called prana in the yoga philosophical context and that's one of the oldest ideas that there is it predates yoga um from you know, at least three thousand years ago, described in one of the Vedas as as the sort of foundation of all existence, um, referring partly to breath and just this sort of vitality, the experience of being alive. And of course, you know, modern scientists would say, "Well, we 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 can't categorise this concept; therefore, it doesn't really exist. It's just a, a sort of an imagination of of, a, of an experience." And I don't know. I think there's a lot about embodied experience that is difficult to quantify because it can only really be studied subjectively and Therefore, it's not possible to measure in objective ways that gets gets sort of classified scientifically. That doesn't make it not real. Um, it's, it's it's an experience of embodiment that, that, that lacks a clear scientific explanation. And it seems to me that a lot of these bodywork modalities work with that strange grey area uh, very effectively and people get helped. And uh, even if that was all in the mind, that still wouldn't stop it being... A fantastic skill because uh, something has to be done to resolve the problem through the mind so even if yoga is uh, some enormous you know kind of <laughs> self-hypnotizing placebo effect um more power to it um, but i don't think it is quite that simple i think there's a lot of that involved um to a certain extent uh, but in the sense that you know we train ourselves to pay attention that's beneficial it, it calms us and then good things can happen in the body and we're all knotted up or all, all that happens is all the problems get compounded but there is something subtler to be, being alive um that, 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 that defies explanation it's it's the experience of being alive uh, and science has yet to explain that whether it's in terms of you know the idea of consciousness uh or or the interface of consciousness with materiality and all all that science does is presume that it must arise from matter and and still can't explain it so uh, one way or another it's it's an unanswered question and uh, through the body you know we we, we, we can pay attention to this and that and that that seems to be very helpful
1: well there's two things i want to express but i do want to be mindful of time because we are close to an hour i don't i don't know your your time schedule i'm oh. happy to chat if you're, okay. if you're happy yeah yeah to yeah so two things one one in regards to tradition which is and this is maybe the stickler in me is saying who's in what tradition uh because this, first of all when we're dealing with yoga there's many traditions and as we sort of said before earlier the the sort of modern postural yoga is a tradition that may not necessarily fully correspond to earlier yoga practices. So it becomes a little bit actually to tie into the second sort of thought I had, which is the placebo effect, which is something I I find myself a lot in saying, like, is the embodied aspect an actual placebo and sort of thinking in terms of uh, the chakras, right? So when I first started doing yoga, chakras were these energetic things that had the rainbow colors, like you talked about, and had these biopsychological you know, models. Oh, your heart chakra was related to love, and your your Vishuja was related to communication, or whatever. Uh, and I took those to be true, and I taught those out, and I had effects of them, and I felt those experiences. They were they were embodied experiences. And then I later found uh, studying with uh, Christopher Wallace a bit, Harish, that actually historically that's not the case. And, and most of that comes out of the Theosophical Society and out of Carl Jung's, which makes sense because they're archetypes. And that's what Carl Jung is all about. Uh, so traditionally, historically, my experiences wouldn't line up with the text yet. They lined up with my experience. And it's, it's still a place of, is it a placebo effect? Is the other a new interpretation? You know, I, I don't know. It's it's a constant struggle with, with me being both someone looking for the philosophy and also the science, which don't always go hand in hand. No, this is it. Uh, I mean, you know... We- we conduct an experiment
2: on ourselves uh, as practitioners, um, and that doesn't make the results invalid. It just makes them difficult to compare to others, um, and that's where science sort of draws a blank when it comes comes to yoga in, in, in that sense. But. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of continuity between what you were saying in, in regards to your own experience of chakras and, and, and the tradition, although the objectives are completely different. The outcomes are very similar. I'm just going to read here for, from the chapter on chakras in, in my book, from The Truth of Yoga. Um, tantric rituals connect mantras to elements that are pictured in the chakras, not to the chakras themselves. So reciting a seed or bija mantra linked to air is unlikely to do much to open the heart, except via placebo effects. However, focusing attention on such things can make them real, at least in the realm of subjective experience. And since this is how tantras say that deities are summoned, perhaps the use of chakras by modern practitioners is not all that different. And Really, I think there's the same process going on. There's a conscious, I mean, in the modern yoga context, perhaps less conscious, people aren't aware that that's what they're doing. They're they're sort of programming themselves to have an experience, but there's there's, there's a similar process of focusing on a place uh, and getting subtler in perception. And the problem is that chakras have become this sort of shorthand for that subtle experience of embodiment. So everybody associates these magic effects with them. But paying attention to subtle experience is what gives the magic effect. Um, that's just a, a, a place to anchor attention, the, the idea of the spinning wheel with the particular qualities and colors. Um, and similarly, I mean, one could argue that uh, some of the deities described in, in, in ancient tantras um perhaps don't exist any more than a, 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 a rainbow-colored scheme ascending the spine. Um, but, the, but but they're metaphors for a subtler experience of reality. And the ultimate tantric explanation isn't that you've got these seeds of bits and pieces of, of, of the divine in you. It's that if you understand correctly how energy and matter relate to each other, there is nothing but oneness.
1: And uh, that's what's divine. <laughs> mm, yeah, I find sometimes that I'll work with people – and they might have a little bit or a lot of knowledge of that, or they'll see someone else and they'll say, oh, but during work, they might say, oh, my, I'm feeling a lot of sensation in my throat, or that, that must mean my, my this chakra. And I would try to say, maybe, but what do you think it means? Instead of saying, you're having this experience, why, why are you putting someone else's information onto you, which you can take to be true instead of exploring your own. Well, what do you think that means? Or what, why do you think that is? And it's, um, it can be difficult for some people because they're so used to, to being told, in fact, I, I get in sort of mini arguments with my fiance because she'll say, well, why don't you just lead people a little more? And I say, but my job is not to lead them the more i lead them it takes them away from themselves and but no they just need a little help and it's like there is this fine sort of balance of how do you have your own experience without other experiences wow that's fantastically
2: expressed (laughs) the whole point of yoga is, is 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 the practice of inquiry and if it's not a practice of inquiry it's it's an act of mimicry or an attempt to install dogma and that's not going to help anybody Uh, and it's very hard to engage in inquiry it's a very lonely and alienating thing to do because there aren't the certainties that we would like to have and humans aren't cut out for this to a certain extent we we you know unless we've had a very, very skillful upbringing, spend a lot of our adult lives trying to heal childhood wounds, <laughs> seeking figures of authority who we can rely on to give us the stuff that we didn't get in the first place. Um, so we're sort of searching around ourselves for these systems of philosophy and the gurus who dispense them, who can right all our wrongs, and, and all we really want is the magic answer. And, and, and that's not helpful. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's how abuse is perpetrated and, 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 and how people, you know, compound their own problems Uh, the skillful way out of that is obviously to, to 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 be honest about the need to ask difficult questions and and to open yourself up to what's happening and as you expressed it that really comes down to what am i experiencing rather than am i experiencing the thing that i think i should be experiencing and that's very difficult as a teacher to communicate and I, 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 to be honest i salute you if you're getting somewhere with that project because part of the time part of the reason i do things like still teach occasional ashtanga classes is it's such a relief to say well here's the sequence i'm going to give you some tips on how to do stuff with it but in the end you know that the sequence runs the show you, know, you, you can you can relate to yourself through doing the sequence um, and i think
0: and it, i mean. Yeah, it's kind of maybe not doing the the work of seeking out in itself, but but it's, it it sometimes the answer is the easy way, I think. And some people just don't like you already said, don't have the tools yet to to really go into self-inquiry and and feel safe to do that. I mean, that's the other piece. Is some people might do that, but don't know how to relate to it. And that could be very, very scary. So I think the, the, to have like a sequence, I mean, the Rolfing, we have a 10 series that is a great roadmap for if, if you don't know what, where you need to go or what to do, you do this sequence, mm-hmm. this recipe, and you're, you're gonna, you're going to find relief somewhere or another. And Ida Rolf, who, you know created that was uh, essentially was to kind of help teach people to actually do to become a rolfer and there's a, definitely a non-formalistic way of to treat the body but i think in some ways of uh, what the with and, and i know i realize there's a fine line of you know all these different yoga schools have their their sequence and
2: some more skillful than others. <laughs>
0: exactly. And, I'm, you know, I'm coming – I'm kind of hold, trying to hold my thoughts here with – of these various different schools and how they become – have, uh, while they're a great vehicle to, to start feeling into yourself and start t- developing that, that rapport with yourself, then it's tricky because if you really – you own it and you get it and you're taken there by a particular teacher, it's easy to become quite – dogmatic or they held right. the key you know i think of um and then, then they t- abuse these powers but uh, what is this name
1: which one i mean there are all, almost all of them <laughs> <ideas> <laughs> powers yeah, at there's some there's point
0: all of them but the one that's been the minimum most- yes. yeah
1: my goodness but bikram has like almost I don't, to the best of my knowledge has zero philosophy into his training it's all just postures i don't that's know that's a very
2: good point yeah no, if you watch the documentary about about him on netflix which is a pretty good sort of yeah i mean he did sort of, he damns himself <laughs> he doesn't, doesn't need anybody to do it for him um you're right it's all yeah the main thing he was interested in a lot of the time was was showing people bollywood movies rather than teaching them yoga philosophy um so I think that there's a question as to whether you actually learn anything from yoga philosophy, uh, unless you choose to to take certain lessons from it any more than you necessarily learn anything from a physical practice. And, mm-hmm. and, and unless you choose to orient yourself towards it in a particular way, um, it can be another way to, to either, as we've talked about already, dissociate from yourself or to gain dependence on somebody else um, or just, 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 just to sort of slavishly perform it um, in the hope that it and, in and of itself is going to provide magic answers same as going to see a therapist and waiting for them to heal you rather than understanding the whole process of talking therapy is is for you to find your own answers uh and 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 i think i think it's very difficult in, in in some ways to 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 teach that but it's it's helpful to remind people of it and in in writing my book i suppose if i have one clear objective it was to try to suggest to people that we have no choice in, in in a sense we are living here right now in the 21st century with all sorts of crazy ideas sometimes <laughs> no I'm speaking for myself of what we think yoga is um and uh, that's inevitable we 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 we're not going to think like somebody lived in a different time and place we're certainly not going to think like the author of whatever text we've picked up and decided to start reading so we're inevitably going to reframe it to suit our purposes and the problem is that for many years that process has taken place without anybody admitting it (laughs) so even when philosophy has been taught it has been sort of misrepresented to, to serve a teacher's purposes and the example i'm thinking of is um the teacher in the first tradition I studied in uh, BKS Iyengar, a very influential figure in the development of modern postural yoga. The whole idea of having a class in which people teach, you know, sort of instructions for how to get into the body really developed out of his teaching. He provided a whole new um, language for that. And one of the reasons he came up with it was because he was um, funded by local government in, in London, in the UK, to teach potential teachers so he he was um, authorized to be the instructor in an adult education program which led to the training of a lot of early UK yoga teachers on the condition that he didn't teach any philosophy that he just basically taught methods of keeping fit so he put a lot of effort into trying to think about how and why the process of paying attention to a blizzard of details would be helpful from the point of view of getting you out of your head and into your body and then suggesting things about yoga philosophy through that process um, and that's quite skillful but at the same time um, anybody who's ever got hooked on Iyengar yoga and it's a particularly niche kind of person uh, again I speak for myself yeah usually someone who's a little bit perfectionist perhaps a little bit masochistic happy to have somebody you know bark commands at them repeatedly and, and tell them you know, <laughs> how, how you're not measuring up um and come back next week for more uh try and do that by yourself as a process of inquiry and it just you get you feel lost you know well i'm not really getting anywhere so i'll go back to class to get a good you know sort of <laughs> drilling <laughs> from the teacher uh Uh, a a, a lot of people get stuck as a result of that hooked on going to classes not really sure how to teach themselves not really having their own experience trying to mold themselves to this supposedly perfect expression of the postures and then you reach for Iyengar's light on yoga and you you take your pick turn to any page and see how he's not in perfect alignment (laughs) so the whole the whole thing's a charade in the first place but it was just meant to be a tool and he only ever you know wanted it to be that I think initially but you know after a while of all these people hanging around, as you're alluding to, um, he drank his own Kool-Aid and started to think he knew everything. Uh, and the problem is also that then senior teachers systematize things, in his case, his daughter, uh, really becoming very rigid in the sense of this is how you do this posture. This is sort of all the bits and pieces that make it you know, to the best posture. And all teachers should learn these talking points. But you know, over the years, they were told different talking points, and some of them are completely contradictory, and they were really supposed to just be useful in any given moment. Um, and the best teachers understood that and teach that way, but most, most teachers become dogmatic. And then they also you know, revere the guru who is the source of all knowledge. And that doesn't lead anywhere that helpful from, from the point of view of this individual inquiry.
1: No, I mean, it's funny, I, and I worry that anyone who's on a Shtangi or a Yangir would think we're picking on them, and it's obviously not 100% of the time, and there's nothing wrong with these practices, but I, I always struggled with both of them because they seem so extreme, and to me, yoga really meant finding, finding quote-unquote balance, and balance is about adaptability about being with what is and so it, they always st- struggled with them a lot for that and like you said there are certain it's it was interesting when you look at the certain type of people who would find it and for me studying more into ayurvedic and looking at the sort of ayurvedic mind and seeing, oh well the people who have more of this quote-unquote dosha will like fit more in it and, and and really seeing it play out but i think about you know to go back to something nikki was saying about. Uh, Rolfing, Ida Rolf, Ida was a big fan of, uh, I wouldn't pronounce his name wrong, but Alfred Korbziski, mm. who, you know, and, and brought that into it. And while she did give this framework of the recipe, it was suggested, but never saying do exactly this because the, you know, the map is not the territory is what Korbziski was saying. And I, I think that falls really well into yoga too. If you can bring that into it, where you teach people and you say, these are ideas, this is what we think should be. This is a map of it. But life doesn't follow a map, right? At least that we can't see that. life is moving and, and the map is a map is a two-dimensional object of a picture of something that isn't actually the thing. And so when we can learn the, the methods, but also have this adaptability principle of like, do these postures, these structures for this, when it seems right, <laughs> when it seems correct. Absolutely. And then that's, you know, that requires a certain amount of training and
2: an understanding and also an interest in autonomy. Um, but, uh, you yeah, know, assuming all those things are in place, I think there are now many more sophisticated uh, models for working with the body uh, than there were 50 years ago when Westerners started big time getting into yoga. Um, and associating really the practice of asana with the idea of yoga because for most of yoga's history yoga has been meditation that's the real meaning of the the concept uh, is is concentration training and understanding who we really are as a result asana just being a, a preparatory vehicle for that practice um but now that asana has become an end into itself, <laughs> it can still be a helpful tool. Um, but you know, there's an increasing refinement of teaching techniques. But there's also, as a result of you know this this sort of, I guess, attempt to get away from the extremes. And you're right, both of those schools are quite extreme in the sense that they're both quite dogmatic um, and uh if you disagree with a few fundamental things, you're, you're not welcome in most of, most people's classes.
1: You might get hit first and then kicked out. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, I've, I've had these things happen to me and, uh, you yeah, know, th- those are still the two biggest influences on my own personal practice. I found them both very helpful, but uh, only once I realized that uh, I needed to take you know, a little bit more charge of my own approach rather than expect somebody else to be in charge of my own body. Um, but, at the same time, the sort of reaction to that has, has, has bred an idea almost that we shouldn't really teach anybody anything because Patabi Joyce you know, abused some of his students. The idea of physical adjustments is, is a horrendous thing that we should never subject anybody to. We might injure them, never mind assault them. Uh, therefore, we should actually encourage people to come into a space and, you know, approximate a shape, find what feels good, basically. And then there's a whole sort of promotion of that idea about teaching these days as a reaction against extremes and to suggest there is no perfect shape um, basically do a five rhythms dance (laughs)
1: which is great I love five rhythms
2: it's cool but it's a different thing (laughs) the whole point of yoga is it's a discipline um and so you have to patanjali in his yoga sutra makes that absolutely clear yeah. tapas this concept it's, that's 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 the anchor of it all so you can take it to extremes tapas self-discipline self-mortification if you really want to go too far with it but you know a little a little bit of cultivation of, of yeah, you know, focus uh, is necessary um, and so a framework is helpful but if you can't freestyle on the framework, basically, if you if you can't play jazz after learning all those scales, then then what's the point of learning them?
1: <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this, uh, as a way to also sort of wind down. Mm. People wanting to find more about yoga and find out more about you, would you say that what you're offering is for everyone, or is it more for people who have done an, an initiative step, whether it's a 200 hour or 100, or done a little exploring? Do you think it's necessary for people sort of, I had a call with a friend yesterday who's looking to get quote unquote, more spiritual, get more into like the yoga world. And I was saying like, do a 200 hour training. It's going to be largely like historically incorrect, but you're going to need, you're going to need that in order to kind of, you need to kind of fall back in order to open the the perspective in order to go forward. Maybe I'm inaccurate on that. How do you see that? How do you see yourself in that?
2: well i mean i've written my book the truth of yoga as uh, i ideally i suppose um a 200 hour teacher training course book um it, it covers the things that most i mean i teach on teacher training some of them of that variety some of them you know a lot more in depth i teach on one at Tri yoga in london where we do i think 64 hours of philosophy and history so that, you know, it's a lot more than the yoga alliance says you should do um but yeah wh- whatever the framework um I think yeah, what I've tried to present there is accessible enough that if you've got an interest in finding things out, then 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 it it's going to be user friendly. But obviously that interest has to be there, and you're right in some ways that the the, the the determinant of that level of interest usually is wanting to go further than than what's on offer in classes, retreats, workshops, whatever it is. And, and there's not really anything else other than teacher training and. One of the things I would like to develop, contribute to, um, encourage is an alternative model we don't need any more yoga teachers there's far too many already yeah there's lots of bad ones as well what we really need is a new framework whereby people can can be encouraged to take practice seriously learn to develop your own practice become an autonomous yoga practitioner who can then draw on the rich knowledge of other teachers by, by by studying with them from time to time but can be a bit more self-directing and part of that process would be t- to learn some yoga history and philosophy because it helps you to own your own practice (laughs) so i wrote my book from that point of you hoping people could see how that's happened over time uh, and that's all that they can do now uh, is to decide whether they want a relationship with this stuff or not and if they do here's an accessible entry point but it will still you know you're right seem to some people daunting is a lot of information a lot of ideas um even if it is relatively accessible, it's still above the level some people are looking for. Some people want to read, you know, Anna D.A. Judith's book's about (laughs) spinning wheels of magic colours that will summon archangels and suits of the tarot into your life if you just place your attention in the right part of the body. Um, I can't stop that, and I don't intend to, but but I, I guess I see myself as offering a stepping stone for people who would like to find out more um, but aren't interested in serious scholars. There's a, there's a lot now of accessible yoga scholarship available on the internet. Um, you can yeah, take courses with, with some, some of the world's leading experts. And I'm offering now online courses at my, at my site, truthofyoga.com, which don't really aspire to do that. I'm not trying to bring you know the latest yoga scholarship to people in scholarly form. I'm trying to glean... The insight from those experts that is most relevant to a modern yoga practitioner, not even necessarily a teacher, and then explain traditional texts from that perspective. I've got a course initially that's based around the ideas in my book, trying to summarize history and philosophy in four modules. Um, but I'll also then go on to look at the main yoga texts. And, and again, hopefully that would be accessible to, to anybody, whether they've got prior training or not. We'll, we'll start assuming no knowledge, but we'll hopefully take people to a place where they could then go and engage with with really serious stuff should they want to. And ideally, they'll at least know what it is to be wrong and to want not to be wrong. <laughs>
1: We'll link that up on the you can send me later the the mm. link for that course. Uh and I'll share that there's a great course I took out of I think yoga campus and which is through SOAS and it has like the people you're talking about. And yeah. it's a great and it's a great course, but I mean some of them, some of them when they're talking, it's just that they're there like you said, the scholars debate with each other and they don't always have that ability to, to talk normal. Um and well, they've got a vested
2: interest, you know, in a way if you start. If you stop speaking that way, you, you, you might, at the wrong moment, not come out with the scholarliness when, when you know, when your career hangs on it. After twenty years of training yourself to see the world that way, that's just how you speak. It's just inevitable. Whereas, I guess, I'm fortunate. I spend most of my time talking to yoga teachers, yoga practitioners, rather than to scholars. So, so I'm, I'm sort of more going the other way, um, and, and and that's my aspiration. But, but yeah, there's lots of good courses out there, and I don't want to talk them down. But I, I do want to acknowledge that they do assume a certain level. For of sure.
1: Community. For sure. And I think the way you, the way I understand you to communicate and to express is wonderful. And it really finds that way where you can have history, you can have tradition, you can have knowledge, but you don't have to speak at a, a, a higher register. <laughs> it's know? not for eggheads, basically. It's <laughs> it's the anti-egghead yoga scholarship. Which is no pun about yoga having to do with yoking, right? No egghead, no yolk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well
2: in, uh, indeed <laughs> and, and i mean ultimately i suppose i am a bit of an egghead i just uh, i guess I'm, I'm i'm trying to be geeky in a helpful way that's that's my current sort of mantra for, for why i do what i do
0: well i haven't read the book but from hearing from y'all talking about it it seems like it's a great foundation for someone to be able to sift through any potential bs or be exactly. able to enter into the truth telling of with the tradition without having to, um, which might be it sounds like a great, uh, savior in the sense of keeping people from not becoming, you know, becoming too involved in a dogmatic practice or mm. attached to a teacher. And, um, I mean, for me, that's kind of been a little bit of a turnoff through some of the the schools that I've attended is like it almost, you almost become fearful to have your own self inquiry and to challenge what so-and-so is saying, because then you, then you're like pointed it out. as like, you don't know what you're doing or you're not doing it right. And who wants to feel that way? Especially when you're in a place of wanting to be in touch and to, to, to feel good. Of and, course. um,
2: and if it's a sincere process of inquiry, you have to ask questions. And, and I guess that's become my yardstick. You know, if the teacher doesn't like questions too much, then time to find a different teacher. And you know, part of what I try to do is encourage people to ask questions and, and, and to yeah, my best to 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 sit with whatever comes up when people are answering each other's questions as well and and yeah not to try and make anybody wrong necessarily even if there's something that's actually incorrect in what they've said to try and help people see for themselves how to find the right answers because that's what i mean coming back to what andrew was saying that's what yoga practice is about and uh we've got we've got the problem of not seeing clearly um depending on somebody else to provide right answers or even to, to come up with the concept of right and wrong uh, is, is not going to be very helpful for that process of cultivating discernment we've got to be able to distinguish the difference for ourselves so yeah exactly you've summed up better than I could in fact my aspiration in a way to give people some tools for that
1: process and Nikki to sort of echo what you're saying right now when I meet people and they say well what yoga book should I read if I really want to go deeper I would say Roots of Yoga by Jim Ellison but it's I mean it's amazing it's got tons of information but it it's not practical for a lot of people. So it gives them what they need. So that's one, and now Truth of Yoga, because what what Daniel's offering is really that wonderful way in between. It has much of the same information, but it's written in a way that you can read, that you can take part in. It's not just a, a translation of, so it's really great for that.
2: I mean, cards on the table to come back to where we started, you know, I studied with those guys with Mark and Jim and they're, they're they're world authorities and hats off to them. And I could not have written what I've written had they not done all the work that they've done. Um, but, as you acknowledge, I mean, I, I've recommended that book to to so many people over the last three years, four years, even now, I guess it is, um, and and so many have struggled to read it. <laughs> and so I decided, in a way, that there was a need actually for something to help people to be in a position to read that book. I've I've, I've run, you know, an online workshop where we read through Roots of Yoga a chapter at a time with a study group week by week, and um, and it is accessible enough that that with a bit of support people can can help themselves to do that but it yeah it takes some some assistance because there's just so much assumed knowledge um it's a wonderful reference text um but without a good foundation you'd struggle with it and my hope is that my book provides enough of a foundation that somebody could actually start to dip into a book like roots of yoga and not feel lost at least and that's, <laughs>
1: that's my totally head. it totally does okay it's i've already i had i had heard you on a, on a talk before the book came out and I was so impressed that I pre-ordered the book, which I never do. And I even referred your book for people to pre-order having never read it, which is something I usually won't recommend something. I don't actually, I haven't actually experienced, but was so impressed with it that I wanted other people to do it. And it's now become that book where people are saying, Hey, I want to go further. I can say this, this has information and it has validity. You know, oh. like you said, Anodea Judith's book is great if you want to bypass, but it doesn't have validity, it doesn't have validity there. Uh, it doesn't have the historical validity, whereas your book has that. And what I love most about it is that it's funny. It's, it's it, you know, there's something lighthearted because I don't probably come off today as someone who's yeah. funny. And if you ask my partner, I'm never funny, but I enjoy that sense of lightheartedness. I think that that's one of the things that's, that's if you to go back into some of the practices we've mentioned they're missing that levity it's such a yoga becomes so serious where it's like no like yoga is everything so therefore we we need to have levity we need to have lightness in it we don't want to be too light and we don't want to be too strict we were and we're adapting those all the time and the way that you write brings that through clearly so thank you Oh, thank well you, and uh, i
0: i will say that one video that um i apologize that is an extent of research that i did on you before the podcast <laughs> But, um, but it was, I, I thought that little one minute video made me want to buy the book. And I'm not really, I'm like, not, it's not really on my want list to like further study into the tradition of yoga, but it sparked enough interest to, and it felt tangible. And the humor <laughs> that I picked up on the, um, Because for me, that's I was like, I could probably get into this if it's has some humor and it's not so heavy with. um, And no disrespect to the to the history, but you know, I've been homeschooling two kids through this pandemic, so (laughs) easy info. And um, so yes, I am I'm excited to look into the book and to to read it because it feels digestible. And with humor.
2: Oh, thank you both. No, I mean, that's that's again, that's my aspiration. Uh, my journalistic training was such that you know, if you if you can't keep the reader entertained after a couple of paragraphs, they're going to flip the page, click the link, whatever it may be. And um, so, hopefully, these bits and pieces are small enough, digestible enough that oh yeah, you keep the in the bathroom and dip into it once in a while. There, it's, you don't need to read it cover to cover. It's 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 got material to to, to spark some interest each time. Yeah.
1: That's actually it's a nice thing about it. I mean, I'm reading it cover to cover, but you could pick it up and say, "Oh, I'm curious about this topic," and you don't need to necessarily have read the previous in order to to get the information, which is great. So, you know, people can find your book wherever books are. Well, I don't know, but wherever books are sold, but most places <laughs> books are sold. Yeah, you know, in the U.S., Amazon's a, is a, has it. Um, yeah, and and other most booksellers. We should support local booksellers, uh, and all over the world, you can find. I'm sure you can order directly from. Your website.
2: Uh bookshop.org, I think, is a sort of anti Amazon. They, they 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 have it definitely. Um, yeah. and yeah, all, all all booksellers will be able to order it if they don't have it in stock. And you can all find out more at truthofyoga.com. That's, yeah. that's the easiest one stop shop.
1: Is there anything else you you'd want to share? Anything else people should know about you before we sign
2: off? Oh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um yeah. I'd just like to thank you both for for a really wonderful chat. Um, it's been you know really Really thought provoking for me to just, 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 just sort of come back to the basic questions of, you know, why do we do this stuff and what's mm. the point of it? And also to, to, to acknowledge that uh, you know while yoga has got this sort of long established tradition, it doesn't mean it's got all the answers. <laughs> mm. It's it, 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 it's some helpful tools, um, but it's, you know, it's only a partial solution to the problem of being an embodied human in the 21st century. And it can, you know, modern yoga teaching and practice can learn for, for, from other approaches to, to the mind-body conundrum.
1: <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you, Daniel. It's been, it's been awesome for us. Uh, I look forward to, to being more in touch with you. And um, yeah, thank you for your time and uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. We'll see you around. Ciao. Take care. Yeah, thanks bye, again.
2: Bye-bye. Enjoy bye. the rest of the day. Bye-bye. You too,
1: bye. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Daniel at danielsimpson.info and truthofyoga.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.